Well, Shalford family, thank you for being here this morning. If you want to make your way back to your seat and take out your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one in this middle section. In the back, we have <clears throat> some copies for you. You can take that as our gift to you. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 this week, looking at the entire chapter. And we're going to read all of Matthew 21. And uh, it's, it's going to be 46 verses. And, and I'm thrilled we get to read the whole thing. Reading large chunks of Scripture forces us to slow down, to listen, and to pay attention. And sometimes reading large chunks of Scripture allows us to make connections across passages that maybe we haven't made before. So I'm excited to do that with us this morning. If you take one of the Bibles in the back, or if you have uh, the translation, the CSB, which is what I'm reading from this morning, one neat thing about this translation is in the New Testament, anytime it's quoting the Old Testament, it'll put it in bold letters. So anytime you see bold letters reading in the CSB, you know, okay, the New Testament's quoting something that happens in the Old. And actually, that happens a few times in our passage this morning. So, Matthew 21. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of them and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read? You've prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them, went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Early in the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. At once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer it for me, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Did John's baptism come from heaven, or was it of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd, because everyone considers John to be a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other son and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but then he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these farmers? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. Father, this is your word. Would you give us ears to hear it? Open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from your law and your instruction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know what you think of when you think of accessing the presence of God. But I think Matthew 21 is Jesus' way of reinterpreting that for us. Throughout this chapter, we're going to see three things about Jesus. And we could take deep dives into each of these. You could take deep dives into each smaller section of chapter 21. And we could preach 10 messages through this. But we wanted to look at something a little bit larger together. We wanted to look at the entire chapter. And I think what we see as Jesus first enters into Jerusalem, he's been warning his disciples, this is where I'm going to Jerusalem, and I will suffer, and I will die, and I will be raised. And finally, they're entering the city, and he enters the city to praises, but throughout the chapter, we're going to see that Jesus reimagines what it looks like for people to have access to God. Jesus is reimagining and re-envisioning for people on earth, who is it that really has access to God's presence? The first 11 verses, we're going to look at this point this morning, the king's procession. The king's procession. He comes into town, and unlike a king would, he takes a humble donkey. Well, this year, this is fitting for us because this is an election year, which means it's political ads season. So we're going to see plenty of ads 
of fancy rich politicians in suit pants and dress shirts with their sleeves rolled up looking very awkward. They do this because they're trying to look common, they're trying to look average, they're trying to appeal to common people like you and I who may not wear suits every day. This is very strategic, it's marketing, they're trying to come across like they're approachable and like they're accessible. And look, I'm just like one of you. They're trying to appeal to average people. It's very interesting because Jesus doesn't do something very dissimilar in Matthew 21. He comes into town, into Jerusalem, the holy city, where the king reigned in the Old Testament. He comes into Jerusalem, but he comes riding on a donkey, and they quote Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. See, the way Jesus entered Jerusalem is very intentional to fulfill Zechariah 9.9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Yes, that's the king we want. Humble and riding on a donkey. Wait, that's not the king I envisioned. That's not the king I was looking forward to. I was looking forward to the king, the righteous, the victorious, and he's humble, riding on a donkey. And when he comes in, the people are praising him. And and what we see as he arrives, the king's procession shows us two different responses to the king. Two different responses to the king. The first response is the praise of the people. He enters and they begin to shout, Hosanna, which was a word that meant originally save us or help us, but it actually began to be used more liturgically for worship that meant like praises and adoration to the one we're shouting this to. Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the next phrase comes from Psalm 118. Actually, some of the verses Josh read earlier. Lord, save us. Psalm 118, 25, and 26, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. This is one response to the king's procession. Praises, taking these Old Testament songs of praise and attributing them to Jesus. Hosanna, I see you, Jesus, for who you are. The other response, though, is who is this? Who is this? By the way that Jesus fulfills Zechariah 9.9, Jesus is identified as the Messiah, as the long-awaited, anointed by God, king to rule forever. And then the way that the people greet him from Psalm 118, 25, and 26, Jesus is also identified as the Lord God himself. Those verses in Psalm 118 were attributed to Yahweh, to God, and now they're singing the same things attributed to Jesus. Now the truth of the matter is that we do not worship simply another king in a long line of mixed bags. That's the Old Testament story. Or how wonderful a king is that you read about. It's a mixed bag. Some good, some bad. We might try to make some additions and subtractions to figure out what's the bottom line of this king. Did he do what was pleasing in the sight of God or not? But they're all a mixed bag. None of them were perfect. But now one enters this one true king, who we're invited to worship. And he's the one king that every other king pointed to. He's the one king that every other king made us long for because they were imperfect. He's the one king that's in authority over every other ruler, over every other dominion in this world. And the good news is that this king is coming to us. As we see him coming humble and mounted on a donkey, 
what we can see is that this king is accessible and approachable. This king is humble enough to meet us where we are. And it leads to the second response, which is, who is this? And the entire city is in an uproar. Now this uproar it might not be quite anger and persecution yet, but it's coming. We see in these first 11 verses the king's procession. He is coming. Now, the question we have to ask is, when he has come, what does he do? When he arrives in the city, what has he come to do? When he arrives, it's going to heighten the hopes of some. It's going to heighten the fears of others. But then once he arrives in the city, all eyes are on him. What is he going to do? And we're going to look at verses 12 to 22 to see the king's presence. We've seen his procession. Now let's look together at his presence. What is it he has come to do? And I think he has come, we see from these verses, to restore God's true presence among the people. He's come to restore God's true presence among the people. Now again, we're in a political season right now. Arguments and articles, social media posts, questions. Maybe we're plugging our ears already. Maybe we've already muted that family member on Facebook. But it's political season. What is it that we're hoping politicians and our government can do for us? It's a very real temptation, especially every four years, to turn politics into some kind of idol where we hope our politicians will defeat every evil, right every wrong, establish peace in the land and around the globe, lead us into financial prosperity, get us out of debt, and protect us from evil. We essentially hope that politicians will give us heaven on earth. The reality is that that will never happen. But in Matthew 21, we read about King Jesus who has come to do precisely that, bring heaven to earth because he is the very presence of God. And when he shows up in Jerusalem, the first thing he does is go into the temple. And when he goes into the temple in verse 12, he throws out all those who are buying and selling, the, turns over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. What's happening with this temple confrontation? Well, when people would come to the temple, they would need to pay the half-shekel temple tax. Also, if they were coming from a really far distance and they wanted to make sacrifices, they might not have brought the animals with them. They might, instead of brought money, showed up at the temple, needed to purchase the right materials to make the right sacrifices, so then they could go into the temple to sacrifice. So there would have been places to buy supplies for sacrifices, animals, wood, oil, etc., so they would have places set up to buy and sell those things, but they were set up in the temple courtyard. The problem that Jesus has is not so much that they're buying and selling, but where they are buying and selling. This outer courtyard that they were in in the temple was supposed to be the place that non-Jews, Gentiles, the nations could come and worship the one true God. But now it's been crowded out through the exchange of goods. And Jesus quotes in verse 13 two different passages. One is Isaiah 56, verse 7. I will bring them, meaning the nations, non-Jews, Gentiles, I will bring them to my holy mountain. It's another Old Testament way of saying my presence. And I'll let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But then he also quotes Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's 
declaration. So he uses both of these quotations to bring an indictment on the current temple system. Isaiah 56 shows that God's heart is for the nations, not just Jews, to come and worship and pray and have access to God's presence. But Jeremiah 7 seems to say that God's house has actually become a den of robbers, people more concerned with making and spending money than they are worshiping and allowing others to worship the one true God. With these references, Jesus does two things. He is restoring the temple's true purpose and he's bringing an indictment on the current temple system. So what does Jesus do after he flips the tables, casts out the money changers? Well, verse 14 says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Can we just pause for a second? This symbol of righteous anger in a holy place like the temple was an invitation to the lowest people present to draw near. Something about what Jesus did made the blind and the lame attracted to him. They saw that he was upset at the things that were keeping them from worship and they were drawn to him to say, I think I have a chance with this guy. I think this guy might welcome someone like me. This current temple system seems to not want me to worship, but this man seems like he wants me to be welcomed in the presence of God. So what is it that Jesus does? He welcomes the blind and the lame to come and be healed. He welcomes the children to come and praise him and worship him as the son of David, the true king. Now the reality of the the temple culture at this time is that um, technically people who were lame, blind, deaf, handicapped, they, they could come in but it was restricted where they could go. But most Jewish authorities, even though technically that might be true, they didn't allow them in at all. They didn't want them to appear before Yahweh in his temple at all. But Jesus comes and heals them. And D.A. Carson says, Jesus heals them, showing that one greater than the temple is here. He himself cannot be contaminated, and he heals and makes clean those who come into contact with him. So what's Jesus' response to seeing the indictment on the current temple system is to show, I'm the fulfillment of this. And then he quotes, when the religious leaders get angry, we have another episode of conflict. They get angry, and he says, haven't you read Psalm 8? You've prepared praise from the mouth of infants and nursing babies. Jesus is worshiped as God by children. Why? Because God uses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He uses the low things in the world to shame the high things in the world. He uses the people that shouldn't know, that shouldn't have power, to shame the ones who should know better and do have power. Because that's the way God's upside down kingdom works. So in all of this little episode, flipping over tables in the temple, welcoming the blind and lame, welcoming the children to come and praise him, What's he doing? He's restoring the true purpose of the temple. Now right after this, he goes to sleep, wakes up up the next day and curses some poor fig tree. You might be a big fan of figs and you might think, what does Jesus have against figs? But again, if we read this in the context of what's happening, Jesus is living out an enacted parable. He just came the day before from a fruitless tree. Often in the Old Testament, God's people are referred to as a a tree, a vine that God planted. Now he comes across a real fig tree that's not bearing fruit when it should be, and he curses it. Just as the fig tree was fruitless and therefore useless, 
so is the temple. Rather than mediating God's presence to the world, the temple leaders have turned in on themselves. Now Jesus quoted Jeremiah 7, 11. Let's read this in context. This is Jeremiah chapter seven. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord and there call out this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. Correct your ways and your actions and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words. Chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly towards one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, then I will allow you to live in this place, the land that I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we're rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts. This is the Old Testament version of what Paul asks in Romans chapter six. Since grace abounds, can we sin all the more? And Paul says, by no means. Jeremiah, you're coming into the temple saying, we're rescued. We can continue doing all these detestable acts. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. People had begun abusing the temple, using it as a license to live however they wanted, while not living out the heart of God for what in verse six begins to describe this vulnerable group of people. The immigrant, the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, shedding innocent blood. Jeremiah speaks this word. He's actually in the temple as he speaks this prophecy. And he's indicting them for their mistreatment of vulnerable people. He's condemning their trampling of God's house by waltzing in, thinking they can do whatever they want, and then just presuming that God's gonna give them grace. But now let's listen to what happens in verse 12 of Jeremiah 7. But return to my place that was at Shiloh, where I made my, made my name to dwell at first. See what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Now because you've done all these things, this is the Lord's declaration, and because I've spoken to you time and time again, but you wouldn't listen, and I've called to you, but you wouldn't answer, what I did to Shiloh, I'll do to the house that bears my name, the house in which you trust, the place I gave you and your ancestors. I will banish you from my presence, just as I banished all of your brothers, all the descendants of Ephraim. Because you're abusing the temple, you will be banished from the temple. And now we have Jesus coming in Matthew 21, invoking this entire context of Jeremiah 7, saying, here you are again, misunderstanding the purpose of the temple, misunderstanding the purpose of God's presence, meant to welcome the least, the last, and the lost, meant to welcome the lowest that the world knows into the healing and loving presence of God, and you're misunderstanding the purpose of all of it. So I'm gonna quote from Jeremiah 7, trusting you good religious folks know the rest of the chapter. 
that the end result of those people and the end result of you, current religious leaders, is that you will be banished from God's temple. Now, in that context, being banished from the temple meant being removed from the building and removed from the land and exiled out of the land altogether. But in Matthew 21, there's a little bit of self-selecting going on. They want the temple building, but they are banishing themselves from God's true temple, which is Jesus. They are so focused on the building that they're missing that the living temple of God is standing before them in the person of Jesus. He has come as the true temple, the full presence of God, to perfectly welcome the blind, the lame, the children, and the nations. This king has come not simply to restore the temple building, but to be God's true temple presence in the world. So the king has come. What has he come to do? To bring the presence of God and make it accessible for people like you and I. God's presence is not a place we go to, it's not a state of mind we arrive to, and it's not an inner feeling we get. God's presence is a person. So how do you respond to God's presence? When we read the Gospels, we're invited often from the authors to view ourselves as one of the characters in the story. All throughout the Gospels, you you see people responding to Jesus. And a great way to read the Gospels is to ask, who, who am I most like? How am I responding to Jesus? Do we see ourselves like the religious leaders? Skeptical that this whole thing's too easy? Maybe upset that we've done so much to feel like we've earned God's presence and now other people are waltzing in and they're not as good as us and how do they have such easy access to God's presence but we've done so much to earn it, this is a little bit upsetting. Or do we view ourselves like the lame and the blind, the lowly children who come to the presence of God recognizing how needy we are and therefore praising the one who stoops to our level. This is Isaiah 57, 15, which in my opinion summarizes the gospel as good as any verse in the whole entire scriptures. Thus says the one who is high and holy, who inhabits eternity. I dwell in two places, the high and the holy place, a place one might describe the temple like, and I dwell with the lowly and contrite of spirit. The question you and I have to answer is, which place can we meet God in? If you think you can meet God in the high and holy place, you will spend your life trying to attain to that, and you'll never make it. If you stop today and humble yourself, God promises to meet you in the low place. Jesus has shown us in Matthew 21, that's where he desires to meet us, in that low place. So he's come so far in Matthew 21, and he's reimagined what God's king is really like. He's humble. He's reimagined the presence of God, and then last, in these last 23, 24 verses, he's gonna reimagine another major Old Testament theme, which is the people of God. The people of God. There's this climax of tension in Matthew 21, even though this tension is gonna continue to build over the next six or seven chapters, leading to Jesus' crucifixion. But right here, the Jewish leaders finally approach him directly with a question about authority. What kind of authority, Jesus, do you have to be doing and saying these things? So Jesus turns the question around and asks them, well, let me ask you, where does John come from? 
stumps them because they're not so much interested in truth as they are in what the truth they want and is uh, most expedient for their purposes. So they don't really give an answer. So then Jesus gives them a parable in verses 28 to 31. Who is it that's truly doing the will of God? The, set, the one that says, no, I'm not doing it, and then ends up repenting and doing it? Or the one who says, yeah, yeah, no, I got it, I'm gonna do this, and then never does? And they answer rightly. No, it's the one who, who originally says no, but ends up actually doing the will of the Father. And, and, and they set Jesus up perfectly to prove his point. Tax collectors and prostitutes may have seemingly rejected God and lived lives that people in that day and people today would say are horrible, godless, pagan, sinful lives. But Jesus says that they're entering the kingdom because they see who Jesus is and they're responding with repentance and faith to follow Jesus. Now the Jewish leaders are ones that are seemingly following God, knowing the scriptures, frequenting the temple and synagogues, teaching other people the scriptures. They've got the outward veneer of religiosity. Jesus is setting up for them, the people of God are not who you think they are. They're the people who respond to me. The litmus test for who the people of God are is who responds to Jesus. Jesus gives another parable about a landowner who sends some servants to collect his harvest and they're mistreated over and over again and ultimately he sends his son who is then killed. So not only did the religious leaders not receive the kingdom, but they actively persecuted God's true messengers and they're getting ready to, here in just a few chapters, kill God's own son. I think what we're seeing here is that they've lost God in the form of their religion. They forgot what God's true purpose for them was from the beginning, which is to enjoy the presence of God and to then be a light to the nations, inviting them in to enjoy the presence of God. Everything about Jesus is highly offensive to these Jewish leaders. They wanna maintain their religious institutions even if it means they lose God's presence. This is the difference between living for God and living with God. Stay tuned on that. Anne has written some great things about that that you're gonna see this week. Hit your inbox and live on our blog because that, that is so crucial to following Jesus. Are you living for God or are you living with God? Jesus has come to invite us to live with him, not just do things for him, but to enjoy our life with him. And now God seems to be building a new kind of people not an outwardly religious people, but a people who respond positively to Jesus, who recognize their need for Jesus, who come humbly to this humble king. Now this new people of God does not mean it excludes all Jews, and it doesn't mean it automatically includes all Jewish people. Rather, it's saying there's a new standard, and it's do you respond positively to Jesus? But the beauty of Matthew 21 is that because Jesus is the test, because he's the litmus test, it, how do you respond to Jesus? That's the question of whether or not you're in the presence of God, he's the true king, he's the one that determines whether or not you're in the people of God is how you respond to him. And all throughout, the Jewish leaders have been rejecting him. But then this final parable that Jesus tells brings all of this to a conclusion that gives us some real hope we could grab onto. Because at the end of that parable, 
there's a son who goes and is killed at the hands of the servants in the field. Now the key to the whole passage is that Jesus is that son. He's the son that goes out into the field to proclaim the truth of this is my father's harvest and are you gonna give it up? And they say absolutely not and they take his life. And he unfairly dies at the hands of unfaithful servants and that, friends, is the story of Jesus. Jesus is the stone that's rejected by the builders. He quotes here again, Psalm 118. He's the stone rejected by the builders that's actually become the cornerstone. So the Jewish leaders were rejecting certain people from God's presence, but now it's Jesus who will face rejection. Jesus is the king who comes to us in humility to meet us where we are. He's the king who comes to bring God's true presence, but now this king will face rejection and death like the son in this parable. The king has come this first time not to enjoy perfect victory, but to lay his life down, to die. And this is what ultimately allows us to come in. See, we're the foreigners to God who are unable to make our way into God's presence. And Jesus takes all that on himself. He says, you can put all that on me. The one who will get cast out of God's presence, it doesn't have to be you, I'll I'll get cast out. The one who dies, I'll take it. The one who faces ultimate rejection, put that on me. And the good news is that he doesn't stay that way because the stone that's rejected becomes the cornerstone. The cornerstone's the one that holds it all together. It went on a corner of two walls at the top and held both of those walls together. And Jesus says the stone that's rejected becomes the cornerstone. Jesus will not stay rejected. He will not stay dead. But he will rise up victoriously to purchase our salvation. The reality of the story is that those who think they deserve God's presence don't. And the ones who think they don't deserve God's presence God's presence are beginning to recognize their need for Jesus. And then Jesus comes in as the king, victorious and righteous, to humbly serve and ultimately lay down his life so that you and I can be welcomed into the kingdom. All throughout Matthew 21, Jesus reimagines the accessibility that you and I have to God in his presence. So, how is it that you think you have access to God's presence? Is it through a life you can attain? Hard work, lots of effort, or you're making your way up to God. Or you get a punishment and then you say, what can I do to make up for this? Or is it through the king, humbly coming to you, restoring God's presence in the world and in your life? How is it that you access the presence of God? Matthew 21 would invite you to say, It is only through Jesus. Let's pray.